Uh, it's encouraging to see us work together. It's also encouraging to, to remember that it's, it's collectively what we're doing individually. Uh, every day God gives us an opportunity to serve those around us, and our, our prayer is that uh, something like 2028 just reinforces uh, what God is already doing in our lives. Uh, before we come to our, our time of study in Genesis this morning, looking at the life of Joseph, I'd like to spend just a, a couple of moments in prayer together. I'm going to lead us in prayer, but uh, things that may be on your hearts, things that may be on your mind, I would encourage you uh, to pray for, uh, for those things as well as I lead us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that as we come together, as we just watched that video and we've sung that you're the one who leads us every step every day. We thank you that uh, serving isn't our idea, it isn't something for which we can take credit. Father, the praise belongs to you for not only redeeming us, but for uh, growing the serving heart of Jesus in our lives, changing us from, from being folks who care only about ourselves, think only about this life, to wanting others to experience your grace and your mercy through their interaction with us. And Lord, that's a very humbling thing because we, we fall so far short of being able to do that with any consistency. And yet your power and your grace invade our lives. You not only redeem us, but you transform us. You are transforming us. Father, I thank you for every disciple in this room this morning, young or old, believer for 10 minutes or believer for 50 years. You are doing your work in our lives, and we praise you for that this morning. It's good and it's right for us to come together and to worship you to give you praise and glory. Father, we also come confessing our sins, acknowledging that we don't love you as we should, acknowledging that we have not followed you as we, as we should this past week, moments where we just completely neglected your presence in our lives. Father, we thank you that there is grace and mercy for sinners like us at the cross. And so we come not uh, with joy for our sin, but with joy in the fact that you will forgive us that you will be compassionate. Father, we also come this morning with lots of different things on our minds. Uh, some of us lost friends this week or loved ones. Others of us have friends or loved ones who are ill. Father, some of us have had a very difficult week. Others of us have, have enjoyed a great week with family and celebrating uh, our independence and, and everything in between, Lord. This room represents all different types of emotions, issues, struggles and triumphs, joys and sorrows. Father, were we to take time to, to lay all of them out before you, we would, we would be here probably for several days. But Father, we thank you that your mind is not limited as ours is. Your knowledge is not restricted to what you see or experience. Father, you know everything. You see everything. The all of eternity is in your mind before, before it even began to take shape in this cosmos. So, Father, we come to the one who is almighty, and we ask for your presence in our lives. We ask for your provision of care. We ask for your transforming power, Lord. We ask that you would do the work that only you can do. Father, we think of our teenage students this week who are getting ready to go on a couple of different trips uh, for the great escape and then for the, for the serving trip in, in Indianapolis on Sun Service. Lord, we pray for their protection. Lord, we pray that this would be 
Uh, these two weeks would be weeks that you use in their lives to mold and to shape them, to show them your faithfulness and your goodness, and to grow them up in their faith. Father, we thank you for the children you give us. We thank you for the children that are in this service this morning, Lord, and we pray that we would, we would point them to Jesus. And now, Lord, as we come to worship you with our minds, with our intellect, and with our emotions, we pray that your word would instruct us. Father, forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way what you want us to learn and know this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so one more time, if you would, give your attention to the screen and think about this question. What do you do when you come to a fork in the road? The, uh, the journey of life for the believer in Jesus is a journey of discipleship. Uh, we had a little fun with that on the screen, but clearly there are lots of different forks in that particular pathway as well. There are choices to be made, decisions of faith. Will I trust in God at this moment? Uh, or, or perhaps not. Uh, if you don't have a map, you can easily get lost. Uh, if you're given the wrong directions, don't you love the scarecrow? People go both ways. How helpful is that? Thank you so much. If you don't uh, get the right directions, you can easily become lost. But also, and the, the last clip showed this, I think, taking the correct fork in the road. If you've seen that movie, you know Indiana Jones was trying to save his father's life. Uh, by, by getting the antidote to what had just happened to him uh, when he comes to that moment where he says, it's a leap, it's a leap of faith, I, I have to trust. But taking the correct fork in the road may actually lead to the most challenging pathway. The right way to go might not be, and maybe most often isn't, the easiest pathway to travel. So how do we decide when we come to these moments of decision when we come to these forks in the road. And I would suggest that we face them every day. Uh, I don't think this is just the, the big decisions of life. You know, we, we think we kind of love each other. Should we get married? Or they've offered me this job and they've offered me this job. Maybe which, which one of those should I take? Or, you know, what, what do I want to study when I get to college? What, what's the most important thing is when I think about my career? Those are forks in the road. But there are a lot of forks every day. My mom just asked me a question, and, and I know that I punched my little brother, but am I going to tell her the truth, or am I going to say somebody else did it? I know what I should do uh, in this particular situation. I know what they're asking me to do, but that won't honor Jesus. Am, am I going to actually follow Jesus in this moment? I think we face crossroads probably multiple times every day. So I want to suggest this morning that taking the right fork in the road puts us in a position to, A, trust God, and B, be a living witness to his power and his saving grace. Let me say that one more time. That's really the, the sermon in a sentence this morning. Taking the, the right fork in this pathway of faith, it puts us in a position where we trust God and where we can be a living witness to his power and his saving grace. So this morning we're going to look at Joseph. Uh, and the reason there's no scripture in your program, which you're, you're, we're typically used to putting all the scripture in, is because Joseph's life spans from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. And there's no way we can cover all of that this morning. We're only going to cover a fraction of that this morning. But Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson. So if you are with us last Sunday under the tent over at the new property, uh, you heard Joe Briab talk about uh, Abraham's journey of faith. Well, there's Abraham, and then there's his son Isaac, and then there's Isaac's son Jacob, and one of Jacob's sons is Joseph. And we're going to look at parts of Joseph's life today. We're going to look at kind of four forks in the road, 
and see what Joseph did when he came to each one of them. The first fork in the road he comes to in Genesis chapter 37 is the fork in the road that I'm going to call foolishness or the fool. Joseph being 17 years old, and just kind of as a side note for a second, remember that age because we're going to come back to his age a little bit later on in the the, uh, passage. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. There were 10 other brothers at that time. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. He, he tattled on them. He, he told on them. But in the Hebrew, the way this is worded, it means that he brought a bad report about them that wasn't technically accurate. In other words, he, he kind of couched it in terms where he looked better and they looked a little bit worse. I'm sure nobody in this room, me included, has ever done that to anybody else, Okay. Verse 3, now Israel, that's the dad, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Then a little bit later on, we learn Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And here's why. We're not going to go into the contents of the dream. But Joseph basically had a dream where he was the kind of the king of kings and everybody, the brothers, were bowing down to him. He had a second dream where he had a dream and his brothers bowed down and his father also bowed down to him. So what do you do when you're 17 years old and you're full of yourself and, and, and you, you got the world by the tail and, and pride is not a problem for you because you got plenty of it and arrogance is not an issue because you got plenty of that too and answers come easily to you you're about as smart as you're ever going to be somewhere between 14 and 18 years old is the smartest time in your life so what do you do well maybe with all due respect to those of you that fall into that age group maybe you do something a little foolish that's what joseph did he started bragging he started boasting. He clearly, his coat of many colors was something that he could, he didn't even have to say anything about it. And you can see in the background, the brothers don't look too happy there. There's, there's Israel or, or, uh, or Jacob is his former name with young Joseph. And Joseph knows very well that he's his father's favorite, all right? So he tells this dream to his brothers. He guess what, guys? Someday you're all going to bow down to me. Isn't that wonderful news? Well, nobody likes, A, a tattletale, and certainly nobody uh, likes anybody who is braggadocious on their own right. And so what do his brothers do? Remember the, the verse said they couldn't speak one peaceable word to him. Do you have anybody in your life like that? That you kind of look at him and you're like, mm, I got to walk away because if I say something, it's really going to be bad. Well, his brothers weren't quite that worried about how he felt about him. So they were thinking about murdering him, but Judah, one of the brothers, said, it'll be a whole lot better off if we just sell him to these Ishmaelites who are passing by. They're slave traders. We'll sell him as a slave. He'll be gone. We won't have blood on our hands, and we'll just tell dad that a lion killed him. And everybody comes out on top. So that's what they did. Joseph's first fork in the road led him to a very, very bad place. Because he acted in a very foolish manner. Have you ever come to a fork in the road? And maybe it was simply saying a word or not saying a word. <laughs> and you said it, and then you go, oh, I, I wish I could take that back. That was such a foolish thing to do. I think disciples of Jesus every day are faced with the, the opportunity to, to live and act in the wisdom that the Lord Jesus gives us or to live and act in foolishness. So off Joseph goes as a slave into Egypt. You think that might be the end of the story, right? Except for this little editorial comment. 
Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, bought him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that all the Lord caused, excuse me, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So this first folk on the road seemed to be going in a bad direction, except for this editorial comment that the Lord was with Joseph. But, but look to the extent at which Joseph was under God's care. He, he's the most successful person in slavery that, that's ever been written about. God cares for him. And, and you could almost stop the story there and say, well, that, his choice didn't work out too well, but God was with him, so he's going to have the best life a, a slave could possibly have. End of story, right? Well, no, there's a second fork in the road. The second fork in the road we find two chapters over. In, uh, in, we're actually in the, in, the, in the passage I just read in, in chapter 39. And the second fork in the road is uh, what we're going to call misdirection. So Joseph is a young man now maybe in his early 20s. He was 17 when he went into captivity. Certainly it took some time for his master to learn that he could trust him and put him in charge. So let's say somewhere between two and, and four or five years have gone by and now Joseph is running the entire household. And he's experienced a great success, but he was handsome in form and appearance. I want to point something out here. It means that not only did he look good, but, but he acted well also. It means that, that he was a renaissance man. It means that when he walked into a room, everybody's eyes looked, and every guy in the room went, I wish I could be like Joseph. And every woman in the eye kind of went, hmm, interesting, right? Okay. This was the kind of guy that, that got your attention tall, good-looking, and you talk to him, and he, and, he, and he knew the ways of the world. He could, he could speak intelligently about all different hosts of topics. He's the kind of guy you wanted to be around. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything in my charge. He is, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? She spoke to Joseph day after day, but he would not listen to her and lie beside her or be with her. This is what I call the fork of misdirection. What, what Potiphar's wife is saying is, hey, Joseph, come this direction. Come down this pathway. You're almost at the top. You're almost at the pinnacle. You have everything, but now you can have me too, and this will be great, and, and my husband will never find out. She's trying to point him down the wrong pathway. I, I don't want to pick on the scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz. How, how can you pick on the scarecrow? But first he says, go this way. Then he says, go this way, and she's looking at the path. She knows right from wrong. She knows what she's doing, but she, she tempts Joseph. So here's a man in his early 20s, yet mindful of God enough to recognize the lie. And that's important here. It's important for us to understand that when Joseph says, I can't, I can't do this, how does he speak? How then could I do this great wickedness 
and sin against God. He knew he would be being unfaithful to his master, but he also understood that he had an obligation to his God, to God who had been merciful, who had been with him, who had made everything succeed, that his responsibility was to what? To walk by faith, to trust in that God, to obey his statutes and know that that was the pathway of life. So when he came to the fork in the road, for Joseph, it really wasn't even a fork. It's like, there's no way I'm going to go this way. I can only go this way. There's a young man who, who uh, was raised, for the most part, a Green Tree Community Church. We, we started Green Tree. I think he, he was probably about 11 or 12 years old, and he told me a story after he'd gotten out of college about being in a class of about 200 students, and the professor said, is anybody in here a Christian? Does anybody here believe in Jesus? And a handful of people raised their hand. And the professor just went off on everybody and just said, you're foolish, you're naive, you're stupid. You you know, this is what college is for is to drum all that silliness out of you. And for several minutes, he he really took him to task. He said, now, how many of you still would call yourself a Christian? And and this one young man and one other young woman raised their hand, only two left. And then the professor said, I don't even believe everything I said. I just wanted to see who really believed what they believed. You know, kind of an interesting little trick to play on somebody. But, but this young man said, the hardest thing in my life almost that I've ever done was get my hand from here to here when he asked me the question. But he said, I had to do it. Why? Because he recognized misdirection. He recognized the pathway that did not belong to God. So you go, this is great. This is going to be wonderful, right? It's going to turn out Joseph's going to be faithful and God's going to take care of him and, and he's going to keep his position. Everything's going to be okay, right? Except his, um, the, the mistress of the house, the wife, makes up a story about him. One day she tries to seduce him. He runs out of the house. He runs away so violently she's clutching at him that she's left with his robe in her hands. And so she says to her husband, he tried to attack me. This Hebrew slave that you've brought into our house has now defiled our house. She makes up a big lie. And what happens to Joseph? Here he goes from at least being in a great position for a slave, if there is such a thing, to being thrown into prison. Potiphar doesn't ask Joseph's opinion. He doesn't ask him what happened. He just sends him off to jail. And you would think, well, maybe that's the end of the story, except there's an editorial note. But the Lord was with Joseph showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Or the warden is the, is the word we use today. And the warden of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So here's Joseph. In a bad way, he goes from being a slave to going to prison. And, he, and he's, again, he's, he's maybe in his mid-20s. And he went from, at 17 years old, being you know, the apple of his father's eye, even though his brothers hated him, to having the world at his feet, to now some, let's just say, maybe about seven years later, he's now in the depths of the dungeon. It would seem, perhaps, that God had abandoned him. And yet, we read that the Lord is still with Joseph. God is faithful. So we come to the third fork in the road. And the third fork in the road is what I'm going to call the, the fork of disappointment. So here's Joseph. He's in charge of the entire prison. And one day, here's what happened. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king, of Egypt, who was confined to the prison, each 
his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. So here are two guys in prison, and I'm, I'm going to really kind of skip through this passage. There are, a lot, there are a lot of verses we're not reading. But they've had these dreams, and they don't know what they mean, but they're disturbing them. Have you ever had this, like, really vivid dream where, like, you can almost reach out and touch it, and, and you wake up and you go, oh, that didn't feel real good. They've had this experience, okay? So Joseph says to him, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So Joseph, tell, so Joseph hears the dreams, and the dream, the baker or the, the cupbearer tells his dream first, and Joseph says, here's the interpretation of your dream. In three days, you're going to get out. And when you get out uh, and you, the king restores you, remember me, because I've been wrongfully in prison, which we'll come to in a second. The baker's dream was that he would get out in three days, but that Pharaoh was going to hang him. And they both came true. The cupbearer is restored, and the baker is executed for his crime. So we pick it up in the middle of the page. Remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. So here's Joseph. He does this guy an incredible favor. He explains to him what's going to happen. And literally three days later it happens just like Joseph said it would. Is God gave Joseph the interpretation. And Joseph asked for a tiny, small, little favor. He asked for the cupbearer to go to the Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, can I tell you a story? Now that, now that I'm reinstated, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I had this dream, but I didn't know what would happen. And this guy told me this dream. Could we at least hear his case? Could we maybe hear, maybe call Potiphar in and find out what's going on? You think that maybe Joseph might have found his own pathway out of prison, right? And bottom of the page. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so Joseph comes to the fork in the road that I call disappointment. Because there is no editorial comment here, friends. The author of Genesis doesn't go back now and say, but the Lord continued to be with Joseph in prison. And I think that's intentional. I think it's intentional for us as readers and, and, and hearers of the story to decide whether or not we think God's going to continue to stay with Joseph or not. Because every person in this room, even some of our youngest ones, have experienced disappointment in our lives. Probably every person in this room could go around the room today and say, if there's just one thing I could correct right now and change and make different, it would be X. We live in a world filled with disappointment because we live in a world filled with brokenness. It wasn't right that Joseph was in prison in the first place. Foolishness is no excuse to sell someone into slavery. It wasn't right that he was a slave to begin with. And now here he does someone an incredible kindness and gives him hope beyond all hope. And he asks for one small thing and it doesn't happen. And Joseph is forgotten. And I'll tell you what the next couple of verses say. We'll see him in just a minute. The next couple of verses say, and two whole years went by. <laughs> There's Joseph languishing in prison, I think probably without any hope at all. Why the apparent silence from heaven? And what do you and I do when we experience what we would consider that silence as well? When God doesn't answer the way we had hoped he would. When the answer perhaps that we hear is not the answer that we necessarily want what do we do in this life when disappointment comes our way? Because being a disciple of Jesus does not remove us from disappointment. 
And it may be in that moment that God is most quiet because he wants to test our faith, which is a good thing. He wants to grow us in our trust of him. He wants us to learn the truth that walking by faith and not by sight really is the right pathway to take. And so God is quiet at this moment, but he is not absent. And Joseph comes to the fourth fork in the road, and it's the fork in the road that we're going to call Revelation. After two whole years, Pharaoh had a dream (laughs) that he was standing by a Nile, the Nile, and then it goes on to tell the dreams, which we're not going to go into right now. And behold, Pharaoh awoke and realized it was a dream. But in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember a young Hebrew. you got to appreciate a little bit of the humor in this. It's like this guy got out of jail. Like, oh, wait a minute, a dream? You've been looking around for a couple weeks to find somebody who can interpret this dream? Oh, I remember this young hero, or this, this young Hebrew. We go to the next slide, if you would, please. And so Joseph is cleaned up, and he's brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him his dreams. And basically his dreams are, uh, I I saw a field filled with cattle, and I saw another field filled with with corn, and and the cattle were fat and plump, and the corn was lush. And then I saw seven uh, seven more cattle come that were skinny and and ugly and, and awful, and they looked like they were on the verge of death, and they ate up the good cattle. And then I saw these stalks of corn that were all withered, and they consumed the really good stalks of corn. What do I do with this? And so here's Joseph on the spot. Here's his moment. Is God going to continue to be with Joseph? Now, remember, it's been two whole years, so Joseph's now probably somewhere around 30 years of age. For 13 years, he's been either a slave or he's been a prisoner. But suddenly, crisis hits Egypt, and there is a famine. And so Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, the seven years, the, the, the cows you saw that looked great, the corn looked great, that's seven years of plenty. You're going to have seven bumper crops. You're going to have seven years where you, you can't eat all you grow. You can't slaughter all the cattle that you raise. You're just going to have so much you won't know what to do with it. But after that, it's going to be seven years of absolute and complete famine. And then they continue the conversation. And Pharaoh looks at everybody around the room who, who should have been able to interpret the dream in his opinion, And he says, can we find anybody smarter than this guy? Pointing to Joseph. He goes, Joseph, how would you like a job? (laughs) I got an opportunity for you. How would you like to be in charge of everything in all of Egypt and prepare us for these seven years of famine that are coming? Because clearly, God is with you. Pharaoh's no dummy. Can't be a king and be foolish, right? Here's Pharaoh, and he's looking at all these wise men, and he's looking at Joseph, he's like, This is a pretty easy deal. Joseph, you're in charge. Help save us. God is there in the moment. You see, God's plan was for Joseph all along. He had never left Joseph, even though we don't read about him explicitly. He's there implicitly. He never takes his eye off Joseph. He isn't, Joseph for one second, isn't outside of the care of his God. I think maybe I've told you the story about when Katie was in second grade and she was always late getting up. And so one day Cindy said to her, if you, if you keep being late getting up and making your older brother late to school, you're going to walk to school. So our house to Kaiser, where our kids went to elementary school, is about a mile. So sure enough, like two days later, three days later, Katie forgets. She wakes up and Cindy says, you're going to have to walk to school. 
get dressed. And she said, but mom, it's raining. She goes, yeah, you better, better take your raincoat and you better take your umbrella. Great parenting. Sorry, sweetie. You knew what, the, what was going to happen. Here we go. So Cindy sends Katie out the door. As she's sending Katie out the door, she's calling the school. And she gets to school on the phone. She says, my daughter's walking to school. When she gets there, she's going to be very upset because here's what happened. Now, I want you to know something. I'm getting in the car. She won't see me, but I'm going to follow her all the way to school to make sure she's okay. I think Cindy maybe told Katie that when she was like 25 years old. And I wish I had had a camera to get the expression on Katie's face. She was like, eh. <laughs> like, gotcha, right? Your mother's not going to let you alone to walk a mile to school when you're eight years old all by yourself. She's going to be with you every step of the way, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> Friends, that, that's the fork in the road for us. God doesn't abandon his disciples. God doesn't leave his disciples. In fact, what God was doing was using Joseph to prepare for your salvation and for my salvation. This is why I call it revelation. Let's go on for just a minute. So later on, Joseph meets up with his brothers. Joseph is probably now somewhere around 40 years old. Probably 23 years have gone by. His brothers are in Egypt. Why? They need food. And guess what? Egypt's the only place in the near Middle East that has any food because Joseph has stored it all up. He's done a great job, right? And so his brothers come and they, and they find out who Joseph is and they're like, well, he's going to kill us for sure. He, and, and we deserve it because of what we did to him. And here's what Joseph says. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here. I like, there's a little bit of brother jab there, isn't there? Because you sold me here. I and mean, he kind of he sticks him a little bit, okay? But God sent me here before you to preserve life. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Sometimes people ask me, what do you think God's doing in your life right now? And the honest answer is, I'm not sure, but ask me in about five years. I don't think the application of this passage this morning is that we're just going to know everything that's going on in our lives perfectly. I don't think wisdom dictates that. I think wisdom dictates that, that we walk by faith, knowing that at some point God's going to reveal to us what he has done. And what he calls us to in the moment is simply to trust him. And when we come to those forks in the road, to know that he is a redemptive God, to know that he is a God of mercy and a God of grace. And so in this situation, Joseph says, you know what, guys? God had a plan all the way along, and it was to save you guys. But you know what? Joseph wasn't right. He was only right to a point is the way I should save it. Because God wasn't just saving Joseph and his brothers and their families. He was saving you, and he was saving me. Look at what it says in chapter 50 or excuse me, chapter 49 of Genesis, where uh, Israel, the father, is on his deathbed, and he's calling his sons in one by one, and he's blessing them. And he says to, uh, to the sons, gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And then he speaks to Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And peoples means all nations. Now, anybody want to venture a guess where, what tribe was the tribe of King David? Anybody? Anybody? Judah. Thank you very much. I, I know we've had a lot of food this weekend, and we're maybe a little sugars messes up. Well, Judah was the tribe from which King David came. 
Anybody want to guess the lineage of the Lord Jesus? King David, right? God wasn't saving Joseph and Joseph's family alone. God was saving the world. And that's why when we come to the forks in the road, that's why trusting God moves us away from foolishness. It keeps us from falling for misdirection. Trusting God helps us bear up under disappointment. It helps us realize that we have limited vision, but God sees everything. Or as we said at the beginning, trusting God puts us in a position to believe him, to follow him, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, because those ebb and flow, and to be a living witness to his power and to his saving grace. So I'll end with the question I began with. When we come to the crossroads of life, which way will we go? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the, the notion that you gave Pastor Nathan for us to think about this, this idea that not all who wander are lost. And to take this journey through the Old Testament and the New Testament, even briefly in eight weeks, just to see your hand in the lives of your people. And Lord, as, as Joe said last week, we, we pray again this morning, Joseph is not the hero of this story any more than Abraham was the hero of his story or any other person we'll look at was the hero of their story. You are the Redeemer. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. You are the compassionate one. Joseph probably had this aha moment when his brother stood before him and said, that's why God was doing this. And he was right, but only to a point. What you were doing was you were keeping alive your promise to be merciful. So the people at North Kirkwood Middle School on July the 6th, 2014, could know that they could trust you, even in the darkness, even in the struggle. And Father, I know in this room there are people that are struggling greatly, perhaps with disappointment, perhaps with, with misdirection, with serious temptation. Perhaps we're tempted today to make a foolish, foolish decision. Father, show us your grace again this morning. Let us know that when we come to these moments, we can, we can turn the right direction. We can trust you and live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.